Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, welcome to this Global Council online conversation. My name is Stephen Adams. I'm Global Council's Senior Director. I'm speaking to you today from London. And um, welcome to those who are joining the conversation live, but also to the many of you who will be watching this as a result of receiving our end of the week newsletter. I'm really delighted today to be joined by Keith Zai. Keith is a senior advisor who has just joined Global Council recently to help strengthen our advisory team, in particular in China. And today's a chance to have a conversation with Keith, both about how he's got to where he is today. And he's had a an extraordinarily interesting career in and on China. And he boosts a, a growing team at Global Council focused on the key questions of what it means to build a corporate supply chain out of China, what it means to operate a sales operation in China, and how multinational businesses in particular, and of course, to talk about a multinational business in the third decade of the 21st century isn't necessarily to be describing a large business, how multinational businesses are thinking through the problem of, in some ways, being both in and out of China in a world of rising geopolitical tension. So Keith, welcome. It's fantastic to have you, uh, to have you here to talk. Maybe I can just ask you just to introduce yourself a little bit and perhaps just to tell us a little bit about your career to date. Yes, of course, Steven. Thanks for having me here. Uh, my name is Keith. And uh, I was a senior correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. So over the past 20 years, I spent most of the time like getting to the heart of uh, China's complexity, the learning the ins and outs of its uh, politics and uh, economy. So I've been working at different like organizations, including the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and to Reuters. And uh, from every single one, I have always been on a mission to get a clear picture of uh, what's really going on in China. I think I'm confident to say I was at least like one of the best reporters covering China. I was a Pulitzer finalist and overseas press club award winner. So I was also like winners and a judge for the Society of Publishers in Asia, uh, the region's top journalism award. And today, as we talk about China and its relationship with the world, uh, I'm very happy to be here to share what I've learned from years of experience and my passion for, you know, understanding China's dynamic landscape. What do you think is the, what's the most interesting China story you covered in your career? I realize from, it must be hard to choose from hundreds, but maybe, maybe I'll, put the, I'll put the question slightly differently. What's the story you wish people understood better? I think the top quest story would be like more than China or the China today. I mean, like I kind of feel like when people look at China stories these days, right? And it, it, it gets to be very much a one-dimensional. As in like uh, everything about China is about like one person, in this case, like Xi Jinping himself. But uh, I think largely it's a country of 1.4 billion people. And uh, it's quite dynamic as uh, many of you like been to China over the past years. And there are lots of like a difference or nuance into different stories. And not necessarily everything is really only about this one person. I think like uh, in lots of cases, not just like the public, but also like corporates, like uh, they underestimate the power of Xi 
at the same time overreached the power of the government. Just explain a bit more what you mean by that. How do you underestimate G but overstate the power of the government? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, like, if you look at the stories or like Fox, you know, like uh, rumors, like gossip is in town. I mean, like, uh, they're always, despite like people admit, you know, like she is the most powerful leader, like in China over the past whatever decades. There are lots of like rumors still about, you know, like whether he's actually in control, whether he's still in power and this and that. I think that's, to me, is an underestimate of like how powerful he is and how pragmatic like, this person can be. And on the other hand, when people talk about China's influence in different countries or like China's influence, the government's influence in different sectors, I think <laughs> to me, like largely it's an overstatement because I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, like uh, China's influence, let's say like in Sri Lanka, where like the story of uh, that trap first started, I mean, like uh, there's not so much of influence to be fair. I mean, like, uh, they want to have the influence, of course, from Beijing, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, like, it requires a lot of things than just money. And from that regard, China is not really, like, having the power that people outside of China, like, imagine or picture. Do you think the problem is with a tendency to ascribe a degree of coherence and force to central policy that just isn't there? It's not there. And also like the industrial policies as well, right? I mean, like uh, when China first started to talk about like, you know, like uh, made in China 2025, 2035, I mean, like uh, it was, uh, it created this panic in like, you know, like in the West. Over the past few years, I mean, like if you look at, you know, like the, the actual development of China's high tech, there's not that much, you know, being achieved. So what I'm saying, like in lots of cases, you know, from the government level or like in maybe like in many other like uh, bureaucracies, you know, like uh, sometimes like officials, they talk the talk. Well, like uh, in uh, different sectors, people walk the walk. Yeah. So quite, quite a lot of, and perhaps an underestimated degree of personal power in G himself, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a monolithic and highly effective central government. Okay. Interesting. Let, I mean, we'll explore that more as we start to think about the way Western businesses are responding to the signals they're getting from China. So Keith, maybe we can start with the question of how China in 2023 sees FDI. And I realize, of course, there's not going to be one answer to that. It's a complicated question than that. But in what ways would you say the Chinese government's attitude to foreign business investment have evolved over, say, the last 10 to 15 years? And where are they now and why? Yeah. I mean, if, uh, if you look at China today, it's like watching a uh, transformation. So the, the days when economic growth will, was everything are just not there anymore. Now it's uh, balancing that. So Beijing is juggling like economic development with a strong desire for security at the same time, which uh, in their terms means keeping the Communist Party's control intact forever. And I guess like for non-Chinese companies, especially those from the West, it's like walking on a tightrope. You may find yourself like in a bit of a pinch because you are openly viewed by, you know, the government with uh, suspicion. There's this underlying belief in Beijing that companies, not just Western companies, but like private companies in general, 
could potentially risk China's security. Mm -hmm. And this change isn't happening in isolation to be fair. It mirrors the West's evolving perception of China as well. Yeah. So you see, Steve, like the Western world is tightening the news on China's investments. So there's a growing skepticism, a heightened scrutiny, making it uh, incredibly like tough for China to invest there. So this is also adding to the fuel, to the fire of China's domestic policy. It's like a feedback loop. So as Western, yeah. So as Western nations become more cautious and uh, restrictive about China's Chinese investments, so in response, China also demonstrates with uh, you know like a wariness towards Western companies. They are increasingly seen as you know entities that could you know even like unintentionally destabilize China's security and the party's control. So it's a tense, dynamic scenario with each side mirroring the other side's move. Yeah. Just say a little so, bit more about the, the nature of a, that anxiety. What, what is it about the way private businesses work, whether they're Western or Chinese, that creates this sense of anxiety or suspicion in, in the Chinese authority? I think it's not just, uh, I think this paranoia is not really, as I said, like not just about Western companies, but like, of course, like Western companies are the easier target. So if we look at like China's like tech crackdown, for example, I mean, like uh, the victims are actually the Chinese private sectors, right? Yeah. So it's not really about like Western company. So it's really about like anything that is not under the full control of yeah. the party. Yeah. So that's the part that get really paranoid, given like the, the 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 broader context of like competition with the U.S., with the, the the European nations, you know, like with the West at large. So like they worry like anything that not a hundred percent under their control could be you know potential like a, a loophole or leaks you know like to the to the to the other part of the world. Yeah. So that's uh, one thing, and. Uh, and if I can make another like uh, point, which I believe is quite new to many. So if we're diving deeper into Beijing's perception of uh, MNCs, right? There's been quite a turnaround, I believe. So you see, there used to be this uh, a sense of assurance in Beijing and the leaders, they believed very confidently that Western companies couldn't resist the attraction of the massive Chinese market. It was taken as a given. The market size and potential believed to be irresistible, like magnets to these companies. But over the past few years, especially the past year, lo and behold, the tide has been shifting dramatically. Well, companies are catching on the changes, the new global dynamics, and they're reconsidering their options. They're not just like banking on the Chinese market anymore. Diversification is the new gameplay. Businesses are exploring other horizons, you know, spreading their wings and seeking stability and growth beyond China's borders. So this recent shift is actually a wake-up call, you know, a signal that the assumed attraction of the Chinese market is not set in stone. Yeah. It's a dynamic world and companies are on the move, adapting like the whole like global shift. 
And Beijing is noticing this change. The challenge for them is how to adjust to the change and to face the mistake they have made. And as you may know, I mean, Beijing is not very good in admitting any mistakes. So this is actually a very big and new challenge for the government there right now. How would you characterize that mistake? I mean, what, what is the mistake that you think, in policy terms or political terms, needs fixing? I think we use one word to describe like the mistake is the arrogant. You know, like uh, over the past like few years, I mean, maybe like 10, I mean, it's actually it's been there for a very long time that, you know, like when the Chinese government like dealing with the companies from like other countries, right? I mean, to them, like, you know, all these countries are trying to make money from the Chinese market. So like to a certain extent, it's like, you know, I'm the owner of, I'm the master of this market and you guys come here like for money. So that has been like, and then you have to come to me for money because, you know, you have no better place to go. So that has been the mindset, not only in the past 10 years, but actually like over the past 40 years. And that mindset is not very easy to be adjusted, you know, like in a way that, you know, it's hard for them like to tailor something, particularly for the Western companies, because, you know, to them, you have to come to me and not necessarily to say back me, but you see, you have to like bow and to, to get my allowance, like uh, to get my uh, permission to be operate in this uh, particular market. Yeah. I mean, that certainly resonates with me. I mean, my, my early experience as a trade policymaker was in the first part of the of the 2000s, and the, it, was, it was routine to hear corporate leaders in Europe and the US say at that point that China was essentially, you know, you didn't have a choice. You had to be in China. So it doesn't sound surprising to me that the Chinese authorities would have picked up on that in some ways and internalized it. But as you say, of course, as the incentive structures have changed over the last 10 years in particular, maybe over the f- last five years in particular, um, maybe a growing number of multinationals are starting to reconsider that, uh, that choice and actually realize that with, with the growing strength of markets outside of China, maybe just with the risks of being in China, the risks you've just described, that actually that maybe that it's not so much that they can't afford not to be in China, but maybe they can't afford to be in China. And oh, just on, on that point, I mean, what do you think are they, I mean, you've described a very interesting set of like push factors, if you like, from within China itself that may be forcing, well, actually, no, before we ask, before we talk about that, just do you think there's any sectoral variation in terms of the way that Western MNCs or non-Chinese MNCs are experiencing Chinese government policy? I mean, do you see any big differences, say, between manufacturing and financial services? Or do you think that companies are broadly experiencing Chinese policy in the same way? Yeah, I mean, like, of course, but the straight answer is like, it's very different. I think like, you know, like, uh, it's, uh, it's quite important, like to peer through, like, you know, the challenges and, uh, you know, to look, look at different sectors in a very different manner. It tastes like very complex and it tastes like, you know, it is true that the political and uh, the broader economic climate, you know, like uh, very much the same, but, uh, if we can like navigate the water, like more carefully. I think, you know, like opportunities in different uh, or specific sectors and domains are still like present. And for example, like we can take a Costco like wholesale as an uh, example. So it's a very, it's, I mean, like it's a very American company, for, like in its core. 
And at the same time, like uh, given like, you know, the situation like between China and US, the company is still like expanding its uh, footprint in China. So Costco only launched in China of its first store actually in 2019. So just before the pandemic. And now it's on the track to add, I think it's four more stores this year. And that's quite telling. And uh, like where, like, you know, we're talking about all these companies trying to consider like other plans or to retreat from China. Costco is not just like still like operating their business, but it's actually actively expanding. So I think if Costco can carve out its growth story in China, it's a, it's a beacon for like other Western companies showing the pathways, the possibilities in different sectors and domains. And that thing right here is where the sectoral, you know, nuance come into play. It's not really like a one size fits all, you know, scenario. So for example, like advice, the manufacturers and uh, as you were saying, like the whole financial service firms are like treating different like, passes in China for, for sure. And that's partly because of what China ambitions for themselves. So like what roles like these sectors are playing or like in China's grand narrative of, you know, balancing security and growth. So like uh, the way to fit into the narrative becoming more important and navigating this landscape requires a nuanced understanding of the specific industry dynamics, for example, local consumer behavior and a regulatory environment. So companies thriving in China today are those that have, I guess, like to a certain extent, mastered the art of adaptation in this evolving ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that struck me is that the difference, say, the different experience between a European car maker, say, and an American investment bank can be radically different, in part because, as you say, essentially they face on to different parts of China's perception of what it's trying to do. And the advanced manufacturer that can find itself being squeezed out of the Chinese domestic market is going to be very different from the wholesale bank who's helping to build the deep capital markets that Beijing actually wants. So as you say, there's a lot of nuance in terms of the, in terms of the experience. When, I mean, of course, one of the things that's characterized the last couple of years for large non-Chinese businesses is that they've heard their policymakers talk about decoupling, de-risking. How do you think corporates are interpreting that language? I mean, do you think they hear it and take it, if, if you like, as an instruction to rethink their strategic plan? Well, I think uh, it's, uh, it's definitely like the trend over the past few years. and. I, I do think for the companies, especially, it's like a tightrope walk, you know, like, and in this particular, like, scenario, it's not only China's, like, a call. So a, a lot hinges on politicians outside of China, for sure. So, for example, like, I think in the case of Xi, right, Xi Jinping, he called it as a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think there's actually a truth there. So ironically, like if the chatter about decoupling and the de-risking continues, it might just manifest into reality. And that could be actually further solidifying like Xi's stance and authority at home, because that's what exactly he said before. And I think in this regard, the decoupling and the more like people talk about it, it we're definitely going to like uh, drive the, the shift and come back to this like feedback loop we discussed earlier. Yeah. If you were 
I mean, if you were approached by a, um, you know, by a chief executive or by an investor and ask essentially what it would mean to, to enter into a, a, a JV, so say an American investor or American company that asks, or wants to know the answer of how to enter into a joint venture in a way that, well, with a Chinese partner, in a way that is adequately protected from some of these pressures, what would your basic advice be? I think it's very important to identify the sectors first. You know, like uh, depends on like uh, whether, like say, like a high tech. I mean, like as we were saying, right? There are some sectors like not necessarily in line with uh, either China's national interest, or let's say like the U.S. or like you know some European governments like national interest as well, right? I think for those sectors, I mean, like uh, decoupling or de-risking should definitely like you know be you know the top priority in any regard. But in any other cases, you know, like for example, like the Costco case we just mentioned, I think there there are lots of rules still like to operate in both of the like uh, worlds. You know, even if you think about the time of the Cold War between the Soviet and the U.S., it it doesn't mean like you know like both camps they don't talk to each other. There were lots of like you know collaborations like in many many sectors, healthcare, for example, you know, like the like. Together went to the moon, for example. You know, like there, there, there are different like ways to, 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 to collaborate without like hitting the the red line. And do you think, um, if you had to be a bit more specific about the areas where you think the sensitivities are greatest, and therefore the risks perhaps attached to trying to build partnerships across those lines need to be most carefully managed? Where would they? Where would they be? Where do you think the greatest sensitivities are? I think I. Still, like it today, like it's really about like geopolitical issues. So, I mean, like, uh, for example, like how much data like uh, this company would access mm-hmm. in respective countries, right? And how would you like, or this company going to regulate all those data? And, uh, and most importantly, I guess, you know, like uh, there are like, definitely some of the red lines like you want, you don't want to, I mean, like as a company that uh, want to, you know, like survive, let's say, or thrive. In both of the, the the world, you know, like there are definitely some of the red lines like you don't want to step into. For example, like Taiwan. I mean, yeah. So like this is just like the nature of the the world. Say. say say a bit more about that, Keith. What does it? What would it mean to trip that red line uh, on on Taiwan? How would you how would you advise company or investor to think about how to manage that question? I mean, like, uh, it's a very, that's a very tall order. Like, uh, I, I don't have, like, an uh, answer, like, uh, to be wrapped up, like, in five minutes, to be honest. It's just, like, a long-standing, like, a black point that continues to simmer. So it's, uh, I mean, like, as we all know, it's a very delicate measure that constantly on the alert of the global business and intertwined uh, with China, right? I mean, like, uh, it's... Uh, like, for example, like, you know, like, uh, even like a small thing on like whether like you list the Taiwan as a country or like a, a province of China, like on a map could cause a huge problem like these days. And to be fair, again, this is not just limit to, you know, like a Western companies. It can actually be anyone, like anything, right? Yeah, a yeah. Chinese, like uh, actor, like, for example, I mean, like uh, if, he made the mistake about that. That would be a, like a game changer for him, like career ending, like a killer for him as well. So what I'm saying, like the sensitivity it carries, you know, like can't be overstated. 
and uh, it continuously shift the decisions and the strategies of operation navigating the Chinese market for sure. But there's the, uh, but at the same time, there's like no like uh, really has to look at like all the dimensions the company involved in China. But this has to be the to take as the the the, the you know like a, the red line in from all aspects. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we've got some interesting questions coming in. I'll ask a couple of them. Do keep them coming if you'd like to. Um, okay, we have a question here about Tesla and Apple. Will Tesla and Apple eventually outstay their welcome in China and find themselves being squeezed out once Beijing gets what it needs from them? What do you think? Well, the short answer is no. But uh, as we said, I think like, things have definitely changed uh, dramatically. And for these companies, it depends on like the specific domain that it might uh, step into. So for example, like uh, I, I think I was the first one that brought the story about like Tesla, the cars got banned from getting into like, you know, for example, military or like state uh, organizations, you know, like a compounds in China. So for that very reason, it's also like fitting to what we just discussed. You know, like the, the 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 red lines or the taboos between like security and their data, like all these factors. And in the case of Apple, I think it's something quite similar. I don't think China gonna like uh, kick out like Apple or Tesla, you know, like fundamentally or like at all actually. But like in this scenario, scenario or in the case of like you know SOEs or like government agencies, I mean. The place where they see greater like risks or security, it's very hard for them to digest, you know, anything beyond domestic or like controllable brand. What's the day-to-day experience of that anxiety for a large company like a Tesla or an Apple or their or their or their Chinese equivalents? I mean, how does that how does that anxiety on the part of the Chinese authorities actually express itself in terms of what it's like to run a large company in China? I think from the Chinese perspective, it's more that, you know, like, uh, I think the biggest issue these days is uh, the red line. Previously, the red lines are very clear. Like you would get a set of red lines actually, right? And uh, for companies, right, if uh, they want to operate in China, as long as I understand, you know, this uh, list of red lines, I can do my business there like uh, no problem. But these days, the red lines are also evolving and changing. So that is actually becoming a tougher, you know, like a question for the companies, but also like for the Chinese regulators themselves. You know, you can't picture or imagine the regulators, they understand where the red lines, red lines are because something like they're not regulated today doesn't mean they're not going to regulate tomorrow. And in lots of cases, the intention wasn't just like from these regulators, it's really from like the senior level of the establishment. And so like they can get the order from the senior level, like, uh, you know, and change everything the next day. And that is making like, uh, it is impossible for like uh, the companies or MNCs to navigate the water from like uh, bottom up. I think one thing or like one strategy uh, the companies could, could be like looking into is actually uh, from the other way around. You know, like if you look at the, from the umbrella or the upper level of the structure, and trying to identify what could come, you know, as the lower level, like foundations. So for example, like, you know, 
if we look at uh, the recent uh, healthcare like uh, corruption investigations in China, I think that's uh, that uh, that's a very good example. I was speaking like to someone like uh, from uh, like uh, investment industry like a few years back. So they were actually heavily looking at the investment into the healthcare domain. But uh, even at the time, I was like uh, when we were having the conversation, I didn't think that's uh, something sustainable. And the very reason is because if we look at Xi's policies over the past few years, lots of the investigations or like campaigns were actually like targeting the industries or sectors that heavily connected or related to the daily life of uh, the public. So healthcare sector is definitely going to be one of those. And it will be harder to imagine, you know, like this sector he will be, you know, like oversight. He'll be like, okay, let's forget about it. Let's move on to something else. So it's definitely going to be like a sector that he's going to come back, revisit, you know, from now and then. So I think, you know, like it, just like to my way to understand like the broader scheme of the operation and the, the great leader. And, you know, in a way, like then, like maybe to, to be able to understand the right direction of the future policy. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you, you said before was that part of the challenge we have at the moment is the, is the feedback loop, if you like, between a rising anxiety on well, certainly both the Chinese and the, the US side. Mm-hmm. European policy can be um, sometimes slightly in the middle. Um, what's, your, what's your kind of worst case scenario in the short to medium term in terms, of, in terms of the escalation of that tension? Do you think that ultimately the two sides are able to manage a growing sense of confrontation, and maybe in that respect, what do you think Beijing thinks about the possibility of a of a second Trump administration next year? I think ever since uh, ever since the, the the balloon saga earlier this year, I don't think anyone still remains any single hope that the two sides can manage the the, the relationship. I think it's it's more about you know like uh, what, what what do you think we learned from the from the balloon episode? I think the one thing I like my personal takeaway is that I wouldn't call it a small thing, but I think like even like a, a technical issue can be, you know, bloomed to something like a huge. So that actually shows the distrust, you know, between the two sides and anything else. And uh, that is telling because, you know, like it's not really about like one, you know, like official or another. It's about like the two systems. They cannot trust the other, like at all, actually. And uh, which means like, you know, if, uh, if uh, they can't find uh, like any agreement on like a simple, rather simple technical issues like the balloon thing, I mean, there's no way, for example, they can find a mutual solution on like Taiwan and uh, many other things as well. And if we look at like, you know, like the situation evolved like into the next year, I mean, the next administration, like with or without Trump to be like, a, to, to take the Oval Office, I think, you know, like uh, there's no way like you can see the two leaders or two nations come together. Yeah. And plus, and apart from that, there are lots of like other, you know, like the possible pinpoints that trigger broader issues like in the years to come. I mean, uh, like I some of those, agree. I mean, not, not, not to be too, put too fine a point on it, but what might some of those be? Yeah. I mean, like, uh, for example, right. If uh, peering into the future, like, you know, uh, why is, uh, why is the delicate, delicate issue of Quebec, for example, 
you know, the world has its eyes, you know, like a fix over the years on the Portuguese Dalai Lama. I think this year, like he's uh, 1888. So stands as a like, beloved global spirituality figure and so and so. And at this age, his succession is a looming question. And uh, it's, uh, you know, like fraught with uh, this tension. So Beijing like wishes to have a say in choosing his successor for sure. And a move definitely bound to, you know, clash with uh, the Dalai Lama's own choice and uh, potentially trigger like a fresh wave of sanctions against China. Yeah. And uh, so that's one thing, for example. And moving to another angle, you know, like uh, there's the, the unavoidable matter of succession for like Xi as well. You know, Xi Jinping this year, he's, uh, he's like 17th. And uh, history tells us, you know, succession in, is no small affair like to any paramount leader. So remember, like, I, I'm sure, like, Steve, I remember the time, like, post uh, Mao Zedong, right? And his passing, like, you know, led to a period of uh, significant chaos, like, back in the 1970s. And, uh, you know, like, given the global scenario right now, I can only imagine the situation would trigger, you know, like, a broader, you know, like, a scheme of uh, chaos in, like, uh, not just, like, the global politics, but also in the business world. Yeah. And also like companies, they need to keep the these as the backdrop as they maneuver through their like Chinese engagements. Yeah. I mean, to- topical question um, on EVs. We've just seen, I remember, I mean, I, I for one have been telling clients ever since the solar panels case eight years ago, that at some point we would have to expect a European anti-subsidy case on electric vehicles. Um, it's arrived. What do you make of the of the EU's decision to use the trade defense toolkit in an area that is this visible, this high profile, this sensitive? How do you think Beijing's interpreting it? And where do you think it ends up? I mean, do you think it ends up, uh, you know, ultimately in, in, in confrontation and market segmentation? Or do you think there's a, there's a constructive outcome where the two sides actually see and accept an element of complementarity? It's quite hard to find constructive ground at the, the moment. I mean, the best scenario is not decoupling, but it's the risking, which uh, it's, a, it's an interesting choice of word, but it doesn't add, uh, I mean, like it adds some nuance, but like, of course, it doesn't uh, bring the two sides into like very constructive conversations. And in the eyes of Beijing, like uh, also like add to their like strong belief that Europeans or like the Western world in general, they are actually targeting China. So like in the eyes of Chinese leaders, they believe like, you know, they are actually the, I mean, like they, they, it's very hard for them to think otherwise. So they actually believe there are the victims like in this regard. But I mean, like uh, the good thing or not necessarily a good thing, but the, the, the positive look is that, you know, like uh, compared to the US, I mean, Beijing in its global outlook, you know, like it earmarks the U.S. as its foremost rival. And that's very clear. But at the same time, they're still like trying, at least like showing the efforts and trying to work with the, the, the diplomatic channels to bring the U.S. into its fold, you know, like to align interests and perceptions. And like, of course, as we know, like with the like EV ban and all the others, it's not like it's most uh, staying, you know, like, uh, and, and uh, the European is like percep- uh, perception towards China, as you know, has also taken uh, like a huge shift or hit 
and particularly like in the in the wake of the conflict in Ukraine, and uh, and this is also something like Beijing hard to digest and hard to change, because it's nearly impossible for China to cut ties with Russia over this turbulence. I mean, like uh, I think like one thing as we mentioned, like security, right? Security remains paramount. And uh, in the ground, you know, like uh, of the, the whole chessboard game of geopolitics, you know, Beijing holds its alliance with Moscow close to the chest. So it's a bond born like, from like mutual security assurance, something China, you know, they're very skeptical to think the Europeans would offer like in the same degree. And uh, so, like, issues like the EV, you know, like all these bans, you know, like, definitely add to the mindset in Beijing that, you know, like all these countries or these, like, Western nations, they're trying to stack me from my back and uh, just creating this uh, circle all and all. Another interesting question, um, and maybe a very hard one to answer, but let's have your best guess. Um, how much longer should we expect Xi to stay in power? <laughs> I, I, I think that's a billion dollar question. I, I don't have a good answer, but uh, to be all brighter note, I guess, like I, I think there's definitely a possibility he would uh, step down in another like a uh, few years after this 10 year. Sincerely, I don't believe that like, he wants to be the president for life. Given like his power these days, even if he steps up, you know, from the position, let's say like uh, like three, four years later, it doesn't mean he's going to lose the control. So I think at this stage, you know, like uh, I, I think it's totally possible for him like to step down from the top leadership, you know, in another four years. But uh, this may also come back to the very point that we made in the early, in the very beginning of the conversation. To lots of people, this may be like, you know, for him to show the, the, the weakness. But to me, it's more that he showed his authority. And I think that's possible. Idea. But the other issue would be like, as we have like a slowing economy in China and foreign investments, everything like private sectors, they departure from China and the economy is really in a very bad uh, position. So that could actually like trigger more pressure domestically from the public, you know, like towards the, the rule of the party. And uh, if that's the case, you know, like uh, I, I wouldn't be, if the situation continue like worsen, I wouldn't be surprised in another like a few years, you know, there could potentially be like a small conflict or like an even bigger conflict between like, China and uh, neighboring countries or like regions. And if that's the case, I mean, like, uh, you know, she could just easily stay on for another, like, uh, whatever years he would like to. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, um, we're coming up to time, I guess. Two, two exit questions from me, um, both, both rapid fire. If I asked you what the absolute essentials are for a minimum regrets strategy for a Western company that wants to have a footprint in China, say a U.S. company that wants to have a footprint in China in the years ahead, what would they be? What, what does a minimum regret strategy look like? I think that for every single company, like, you should uh, re-examine like, your policies towards China. 
and uh, which shouldn't be defined by the previous experience, like uh, you know, like any of these companies dealt with uh, China. It's uh, it's really about like understanding like the the, the changing nuance, aligning like the strategies with uh, you know sector specific dynamics, and uh, navigating the past. You know, like based on. Uh, like, you know, like a, a, a good understanding of like she and his policies and on whether like, you know, the future direction of your company fits in the, the, the ground like scheme of China's interest. And uh, so like from that, from that, like you, we can use that as the, the funding or the basic philosophy and then like to choose like a, whether like as you were saying, right, like, you know, like you have a transcendent and the, like the internal decoupling or like, you know, like whether like we should uh, have a certain functions in China at all. Yeah. Okay. Second exit question. I have to ask you this because it's so topical. I'm going to channel your former Wall Street Journal persona. If you were rising on or about Evergrande for tomorrow's paper, what should we be watching? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I mean, like, uh, I, I, I think for Evergrande, I mean, like, uh, I... Like I, I read the story. I mean, like I saw it, but uh, to be honest, I think uh, it's more of. Uh, I mean, like it's actually quite fit into what we just discussed about the, the paranoid of the party. It's like again, like it's trying to make things under their control. So it's not really about like okay, they want to. I, I don't think like they want to like you know arrest like the, the the chairman of the company at this stage. It's more that you know like I have to watch you to finish like to clear all these maps. I can't trust you, like, you know, if you're not under my control. So I think that's like uh, the, 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 the whole idea. It's not like really about, you know, I arrest you now, like, you know, I'm going to punish you now. No, that's too easy. The, 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 the bigger punishment would be like, you know, I'm going to watch you like, uh, you know, from your back and to let you like clean, clean all these masks. And then probably that's the moment I can arrest you. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's, there are a number of high-profile Chinese business people who've had that experience over the last couple of years. We don't need to name any names. Heath, um, that, was, um, that was fascinating. Th thank you so much for sharing your experience. Um, as everyone on the call knows, um, this is something that GC does every day. A big part of our invested due diligence practice over the last three or four years has focused increasingly on these questions of how to manage uh, a an internal decoupling strategy with respect to the Chinese market, the kinds of legal, political, uh, practical business strategies, product design, product manufacturing, supply chain design strategies that can make uh, a feasible uh, it make it feasible to operate simultaneously both in China and the rest of the world in a way that doesn't expose you unnecessarily or excessively to risk. Uh, Keith adds massively. Uh, to our capacity to provide insight and advice in that area. Um, so if those are the sorts of questions you're thinking about, then please don't hesitate, as always, uh, to get in touch. Um, Keith, thanks again very much uh, for joining us. Um, thanks to everybody for joining the call, and we will see you soon. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Bye. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.